If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to Revelation 4 and 5. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, I'm going to do somewhat of a longer introduction than I normally do, and so bear with me. Um, as you're turning there, and eventually we'll get to read the words on the screen behind me, but I want to recap and kind of uh, make sure we're all on the same page of what we're doing as we look at Revelation together from the beginning of January through June. So remember, this is our, um, our framework. Um, remember, if you're looking for one statement to summarize the book of Revelation, it is this, God always finishes what he starts. So if you want to know what Revelation is about, that's it in one sentence. God always finishes what he starts. You might remember this quote that we haven't mentioned in a few weeks, but this is a description of the entire book of Revelation and this will be our experience for all eternity. This quote comes from an African theologian named Augustine that lived around the year 400. And I hope that you will listen to this. I hope that you will take it in. If you're a note taker, text me, call me if you don't get this quote and you'd like it because I'd love for you to have it and meditate on it and think about it. This is a summary of Revelation. This is a summary of your eternal life. All will be amen and hallelujah. We will rest and we will see. We will see and we will know. We will know and we will love. We will love and we will praise. Behold our end, which is no end. Amazing. Remember as well, as we think through our framework, that last year we spent the whole year working out the four-part story of Scripture, if you remember that. So this year we are expanding and understanding in greater detail the fourth part of the story, which is restoration. So remember creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration. Revelation is about restoration. So we can understand God's four-part story in expanding and blowing up the idea of restoration. All right, one more thing. So where have we been so far? So that's the framework for understanding Revelation. So where have we been so far? So if you look back at chapter one, you might remember this is what we talked about in chapter one. And this is really important to say because you've got to feel, and I mean that, and you've got to think and sense the cumulative effect of this book, especially as we come to Revelation 4 and 5 today, you have got to intellectually and, and just, you have to feel the, the cumulative effect of where we are in the book. So in chapter 1, it tells us that Revelation was written to be a blessing. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. So if you've read it, if you've heard it read, if you're following what it says, God intends Revelation to bless you. This book is supposed to bless you. So if you have ever heard any teaching on Revelation and it has produced fear in you or terror or over-concern about what you think is bad that's happening in the world, you've missed it. This book is meant to bless God's people. Whether you read it, whether you hear it read, or whether you do it. Blessing. That's the intention of God's heart for you in reading this book. Verse 19 tells you that this book was written about the past, present, and future. 
So if you've ever heard teaching on Revelation that says that Revelation is all about the future, you've missed it. If you've ever been taught that Revelation has already happened, which is a teaching in the Christian church that some have held, it's not a Christian teaching, but it's espoused in the Christian church at times, that's wrong too. John writes to tell us about the past, the present, and the future. And finally, the first phrase of the first chapter of the first verse is telling you the purpose of this book. Remember what John says? This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's billboarding it for you and me. One revelation. This whole book is written to unveil, expose Jesus Christ. Chapters two and three are written to seven churches, which John mentions in chapter one. So the last few weeks, John Paul has been walking us through the letters to those churches in chapters two and three. They were real churches, historically rooted. They're actual literal places, literal churches. And Jesus writes the letters to these churches to explain for us things that we all struggle with, Things that the church of, of uh, things that the people of God have struggled with forever and ever. We struggle with these four things. The first one is this, and everything else is rooted in this one. We find it so easy to forsake our first love. We come to faith in Christ and then get tired with the gospel. It's easy for us to forsake our first love. We struggle with clinging to Christ and the gospel. The other struggles we have are these. We struggle, to believe, we, we, we struggle with false teaching. In other words, we struggle to believe things that aren't true about God or his church or the gospel or the world. We struggle with the idol of comfort. And we struggle with the idol of self-sufficiency. These letters written to the churches are expressing where we struggle. So this morning we pick up in chapters four and five. And I hope that that gives you a little bit of a framework that John Paul's been reviewing every week. So I'm doing the same thing so that you understand the framework and you understand where we've been so far in chapters one and two as we look at chapter four and five. So I'm gonna read the first few verses of chapter four and the first few verses of chapter five. And then I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna dive in. But before I do that, I have one announcement. Uh, Many of you know that John Paul's last Sunday will be the 28th of March of this month. And so on the 21st, if you notice in the church-wide email, we're having some drop-in get-togethers so we can say goodbye to the Watson family. So on the 21st of this month, from 4 to 5.30, you can come to my house and you can say your goodbyes to the Watsons in case you're not going to be here on the 28th and just hang out with them. We'll have dessert, that sort of thing. And then from 6.30 to 8 on the 21st, so you got two options, 4 to 5.30 in my house or 6.30 to 8 at the Gross's house. The addresses are in the church-wide email. We're going to have dessert. We're going to hang out in the front yard, the backyard, porch. Hopefully the weather will be great. But it's a way that we can say goodbye to the Watsons in a more intimate way. So to drop in, come as you're able. Those, uh, those day, that day, those times, those locations on the 21st. Got me? I know it's a lot of information this morning. All right. Would you stand? Let's stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read chapter 4, the first few verses, and then chapter 5. This is God's word. Listen to this. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. 
And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the, tw- on, the, on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which, were, which are the seven spirits of God. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Would you pray with me? Lord, help us to gather to worship. Help us as we gather to worship, Lord, by decreasing our desire to show up so that we can learn more self-sufficiency. Decrease our desire to be self-sufficient and increase our desire to be dependent on Christ. We pray this for your glory and our good. Amen. You may be seated. The two points we're going to look at this morning are these. Don't just do something, stand there. You're going to hear this a lot over the next number of weeks. Don't just do something, stand there. And secondly, don't just stand there, do something. Got it? That's where we're going this morning, those two points. Remember, Revelation is not like other books. You do not interpret the book of Revelation like you do your sudden link bill or your century link bill. You don't look at it that way. You don't interpret it that way. Revelation is a picture book. It is not a code book where those that are the smartest can crack the code and tell you the secret meaning. It's not a code book. It is a picture book. And it is a picture book that communicates images, image after image after image. And the images are meant to go beyond our intellectual, uh, are, are meant to go beyond just simple intellectual engagement and get deep down into our hearts and fire up our emotions and fire up our imaginations. These images are meant to be more powerful than a simple propositional statement. They're meant to hook us at the deepest possible level so that we don't just know something intellectually and we don't just think in terms of propositions, but all of who we are is engaged in thinking about these images so that our minds and our imaginations are on fire. 
so that our imaginations are exploding with love and thanks and worship as we understand the image. So we think about this, first of all. Don't just do something, stand there. Remember, John has just written these letters that he got from Jesus to the seven churches. And after finishing those letters and what he said in them, you'll notice verse one of chapter four says, so a voice came to me, the one like the trumpet. He's referring back to chapter one. And this voice comes to John and says, come on. It's as if John was in this state of pausing after he had written these seven letters and he saw this open door and he wondered, should I go in or should I not? Is it right for me to go through the door? I mean, it's open, it's unlocked. Should I go in or not? And he seems to kind of be stuck. And this voice comes to him and says, John, come on in. Come up and see. Let me show you what is here. So John goes through the open door. And when he gets to the open door, this is what he sees. A throne. And what he sees on the throne is God. And he sees God there and there are rocks and stones like jasper and carnelian and emeralds. And we'll talk more about those later. But around the throne are these stones because God's presence is there. And God is holy and God is righteous and God is full of glory. And these stones are meant to catch the light of God's presence and reflect and emanate who God is in his being every where you know that's the purpose of stones right to catch light and reflect it and refract it so that so that things look more beautiful so that the more you look at a diamond from a different angle the more glorious it is these stones are magnifying the presence of God and around this throne is a rainbow which reminds us that God is not only glorious, he's not only perfect in his being, but the rainbow reminds us of God's utter, absolute faithfulness. Remember when the flood came, remember that? Remember the rainbow, which was declaring that God loves creation, that he has a plan for creation, and he has a plan for his people and his plan for his people is connected with his plan of creation so that everything will be restored. God always finishes what he starts. And the rainbow is meant to remind us of his faithfulness, to take us all the way back so that we might remember for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, God has been faithful. But when you read through these two chapters, what you notice is that there are these concentric circles around the throne. The first is a smaller circle around the throne. And that small circle is made up of four thrones. And who's sitting on those four thrones are these creatures. You have <clears throat> the lion. You have something like an ox, something like the face of a man and an eagle. It's meant to communicate that around this throne are the living creatures. These creatures are representative of all of creation. Such that the lion is known for being the head of the food chain. Kingly. The ox in an agrarian society is really important because the ox is strong and tilling up the ground. So it's meant to communicate strength. 
Then there's another one on the throne, like the face of a man, which indicates wisdom. God created us with bodies and souls. We are above the creatures because we are able to reason. And beyond that, we have wisdom. And then you have the eagle, which communicates majesty. Such that when God is at the throne and it is surrounded by the rainbow and you have the peals of thunder and the flashes of lightning which are taking us back so that we understand the holiness of God, the utter holiness of God, the unapproachability of God's holiness, his purity. And then those in this small circle around the throne are all gathering together, praising God. Everyone, everywhere in creation is around the throne, acknowledging and directing their attention to this one who is on the throne. And then you have a larger circle. It's made up of 24 thrones. And it is encompassing the smaller circle and encompassing the bullseye of the circle the throne itself, God himself. And these 24 thrones are communicating to us the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles to say this is representative of God's people. He's always had one people. He's only ever had one people, one church, and they are here gathered together around the throne and, and they're there to praise God and to worship God. And the beautiful thing is that the small circle around the throne, when they begin to praise God, they trigger the larger throne that begins to praise God so that there is this concophony of noise and worship and people are so overcome with who God is that they bow down together and they sing and they praise. And even the songs in, verse, in chapters four and five build up and add to one another so that everything in creation is crying out to the center being of the universe saying this is it this is everything don't you want to be there I'm not going to apologize for getting emotional but as a quick sidebar I want to tell you why I'm emotional and please bear with me because I need to get this under control or else I'm not going to continue when the reason I'm emotional is because, give me a second, please. When Jenny's grandmother died, Jenny's mom was with her, holding her hand. And the moment that Jenny's grandmother took her last breath, Jenny's mom said to her, what do you see? What do you see? Tell me what you see. Because she had just read Revelation 4 and 5 and knew that that's what she was seeing. So it's hard for me to read this and think about it without the deep recognition of this is what I will see one day in you too, in Christ. So I don't apologize for getting emotional, but I want to tell you why. Because this is a profound passage and I hope that I will have the wisdom if I am beside your deathbed that I read this to you and say to close your eyes here is to open your eyes there. So all of creation itself is praising God and worshiping the way things are supposed to be. 
The sea is of glass and of crystal. It is placid. It is all rest. It is amen. It is alleluia. It is no longer faith. It is sight. It is knowledge. It is love. It is praise. It is the end, which is no end. And John sees this, and yet he also sees in the, on the throne that there is, in the right hand of him who sits on the throne, a scroll. And the voice comes, who is worthy to open this scroll? And there is no answer. So even in the midst of all this praise and this glory, even in the midst of this jubilation and adoration and worship, an existence that is perfect and pure. John sees that there is a scroll and no one is worthy to open it. And it's in that moment that John begins to weep because he recognizes that in this moment he is absolutely helpless and absolutely hopeless. In and of himself, he can see that as glorious as this is, Whatever is in the right hand of God is important and no one can take it out of his hand. But then a very wise, knowledgeable, devoted elder says to him, John, there is one who is worthy. By the way, this was the apostle that Jesus loved. John loved to lay his head on Jesus' chest and he still feels the sense of this utter helplessness. And the elder says to him, John, there's one who's worthy. And John looks to the right of the throne. Remember there's the throne and then the small circle and then the big circle. Well, in between the throne and the small circle is someone who's there and it is Jesus and he looks as though he was the lamb that was slain. He is the root of David. He is from the tribe of Judah. He is there and he is worthy to take the scroll out of the hand of the father. Because he was slain. Now you might be wondering these questions in your mind. We'll answer them quickly. We need to keep moving. This is part one of two, by the way. So we'll come back to these things that I didn't cover this week, next week. So you might have this question, what is this scroll and what does it mean? Well, the, the scroll is meant to communicate these, you can think of it this way. It's like a will. If you don't have a will, you should go get a will. Go see a lawyer, work out your will. Especially if you're married, especially if you have children, get your will done. Like make a will, have it done, pay for it. Your will communicates what you want done with your possessions. Your will communicates uh, your intentions for your family. Your will communicates the last words you have for your loved ones and, and, and your purposes and your plans and what you want to see happen after you are no more. Which means the only way that a will can be uh, broken open and, and read and understood is for that person to die. That's why Jesus is seen as the one who was slain because his death is what breaks open the seal. His death is what takes the, the scroll, the book, out of the Father's hand and breaks open the seals. You see, the, the scroll is communicating the plans of God 
the desires of God, what his intentions are for the world, his plans for the world, how to have relationship with him, all of your questions that are beyond our comprehension of understanding, they all are contained in this image of God's book, his scroll. So in other words, in order to understand God, you've got to have Christ. There's no other way to understand the living God than Jesus Christ. And there's no other way to understand God's will, God's plan, God's intentions, God's desires, except through Jesus. And this is telling us something profound about the gospel and the message of Christianity. And it is this. The message of Jesus and the message of Christianity is counterintuitive. It is the opposite of how we think. It's the opposite of how most of you function in your jobs every single day. In your jobs, you gain um, notoriety and acclaim and, and feel some sense of worth or meaning through your accomplishments, through your efforts, through being efficient, through bringing about the bottom line, to enhancing the bottom line, to getting things done, getting projects done, getting them done sooner than what was planned, through your accomplishments. But the gospel is counterintuitive. It's not about your accomplishments. The message of the gospel is that Jesus died in order to gain victory. The message of Christianity is that exaltation follows humiliation. The message of the gospel is that life comes after death. So if you want to understand the will of God, it's simply this. You have to die to yourself in order to find life. You can't find life by having a better life. You can't find life by enhancing your life. You can't find life by hoping that your good things outweigh your bad things. The way to the throne of God is by grace. It is through what Jesus has done on your behalf. It is because of his death and his resurrection that we have access to God. And that means every day, if you want to live out the gospel, it means you got to die to yourself. It means you got to die to your plans and your agendas and your power. And that's not easy to do. It's hard to live out your faith in a world that is full of just being a meritocracy. It's so hard because we have to perform, right? I have to perform. I have to study. I have to pray. I have to plan. I have to work all this stuff out. I have to perform. You know this. All of us do. But that doesn't get us anywhere with God. I'll never get to heaven because I preach a sermon. I'll never get to heaven because I counsel you and it's been helpful. That doesn't get me there. The only way we get to the Father, the only way we understand his plans and what he wants is through Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And that is where we get our identity. That is where we find our hope. That is where we have our worth and meaning. Anything else? Futile. Doesn't work. Don't just do something, stand there. Take in that image and let it ignite your heart and your soul and your mind so that you realize afresh that salvation is by grace and what Jesus alone has done for you over and over and over, realizing it over and over and over in your life. 
And as that fires your intellect and as that moves your emotions and as that gets at your imagination, fulfill your calling in life. And that means don't just stand there, do something. When you read through these chapters and think about this image that John is giving us, I can imagine being in the first century and being in one of those seven churches and thinking to myself, John, why in the world, God, why in the world are you giving me this vision? Why in the world are you giving me this image of the throne room? Don't you realize that people are hunting us down? Don't you realize that persecution is going on? You remember we talked about this persecution, the persecution in which one form of it was they would drill a hole in your skull and then pour molten lead in it? Or maybe you prefer being stuck on a stake, rolled in tar, stuck on a stake, and then lit on fire. How would that feel? By this point, Paul had been killed. Peter had been crucified upside down. John, you're giving me this vision, this image of heaven. What about life? Don't you understand I've got life going on, John? I've got things happening. There are people who want to hunt me down. Besides that, I'm trying to figure out how to make ends meet. Why in the world are you giving this vision? Shouldn't you be giving us a new strategy? Shouldn't you be giving us some great new method of how we're supposed to work as a church in order to be effective in the world? John, come on, give us something else. The reason why John gives the, his original audience this image is the same reason he gives it to us. Beloved, if you want to engage with this text and you want to do something as you read this passage, take this in. You need one reference point for your life, and this is it. You want to know what you're supposed to do with this? What you're supposed to do is have this as the one reference point for your entire life, because it, this image in four and five, is the reference point for the entire universe. Now, this is not future. Only. This is now. This is past. This is present. Jesus is the ruling and reigning risen king. And out of all the reference points that you have in your life, your job, your family, everything else, they make no sense apart from this as your one reference point. Look, we all know that there's something beyond what we can see. Harry Potter, Stranger Things, we all know that there's something else out there. What John is saying is that the unseen reality is the arena in which you plug in your reality, what is seen. What you see and what you face has to be plugged in to the unseen reality of the risen Christ who is sacrificed, who lives, and who is reigning and that means that you must bring all of your life, everything, whether you are facing persecution or pain or whether you are enduring a season of tremendous joy and hope, it must all be run through this one reference point. There is no other reference point in the universe. And when you need help at work, 
And when you need help in your marriage, and when you need help with friends, and when you need help with parenting, and you need help with planning your financial future, and you need help with everything else, it must come through this reference point of the throne of God and the work of Christ. Otherwise, it's a competing reference point. At the end of the day, it'll get you nowhere. It won't get you anywhere with God, and it'll never satisfy you. John is saying, have one single reference point. Secondly, moving quickly, is if we're going to take this passage to heart, we don't just need to reboot every day that there's one reference point for my life that gives me meaning and hope and knowledge and understanding and power that being the throne of God and the work of Christ and the gospel. We have, to, we have to be willing to acknowledge and deal with our distractions. You know, this is the one reference point of the entire universe. And if we want to take this in and do something about it, we have to acknowledge and we have to be opening, open to acknowledging and dealing with our distractions all the time because we are so distracted. We are so distracted from this, the throne of God, the sovereign God of the universe, the lamb that was slain being our reference point. To go back, put yourself in the original audience. Facing persecution that intensifies, at least until the year 100, a little, more, a little after that, and then comes and goes after that. Do you realize how easy it would have been for those in the original audience to hear this from John, to think about this image and to think to themselves, you know what? We can blame the Roman Empire for this. And if we could just change the Roman Empire, they can actually be part of the solution to giving us a better life. Do you realize how easy it would have been for them to blame the Roman Empire for their lives or think that if they just fix it, it could be better? Beloved, they didn't do that. I'm sure it was a temptation just like it is for us. There's a guy that wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And in it, he chronicles and, and documents as best as he can the, the rise and progress of Christianity over the first 400 years. And what we know is basically this. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus appeared to 500 before he ascended and went to heaven to the throne. Then from the year 60 to 100, there was ever intensifying persecution. But by the year 350, there were 34 million believers, followers of Christ in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is estimated to be 60 million people. By the year 350, over half of the Roman Empire followed Jesus. Can you imagine that? Because their lives were different. They had higher views of women than any other ideology. They had a different view of marriage than, had, than, had, than was in popular consciousness. They were caring for the poor and the needy self-sacrificially. 
They actually were loving their enemies. They were willing to die. They were willing to be persecuted and hunted down. They were willing to die because they believed in the cross and the crucifixion and they believed in the resurrection. They believed that Jesus was on the throne and that the power of heaven was greater than anyone who could take their life. So they were willing to die. They gave sacrificially. They planted churches everywhere. They had a gospel-infused, gospel-powered life so that in their work every day, they were thinking about Jesus, not perfectly. Of course they struggled with sexuality. Of course they struggled with wanting to gain power. Of course they struggled with control. Oh, we always have, but they kept going back to Jesus. The New Testament is full of God's people hearing the gospel and understanding how the gospel infuses their lives, our lives. And it would have been so easy for them to blame the empire, but they were just following Christ, trying to, struggling, limping along, dying, planting churches, giving, dying some more, serving one another, shouldering one another's burdens, eating the supper together, hearing the apostles' doctrine, praying. They were living simple lives what we might call mundane lives, following Jesus imperfectly. Now I want to read you something that communicates the opposite of what we have just been talking about together. This is written by someone who is somewhat popular and has a following. This is their advice on parenting. This is the opposite of what we've just been talking about. Set that up. When your kids are under 10, filter out damaging ideas and saturate them in truth and beauty. Once your kids hit middle school, you introduce them to and educate them about challenging and controversial issues so they slowly become experts. Your kids should know more about socialism, abortion, transgenderism, marriage, religious liberty, dark moments in U.S. history, and the like than any of their friends. At minimum, your kids should be able to spot the lie in six-period history. Ideally, they are fortifying their friends on matters of liberty and morality because they have watched you do it with yours. Beloved, what is missing from that list? Jesus. Those are not bad things in and of themselves. There's just no gospel. This is missing the gospel. At best, this is a list disconnected from Jesus, but the plain reading of it is pure legalism. What our children need is the same thing that we need, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a life of repentance and faith. What we need is Jesus and the gospel every single day. Because it's Jesus that brings us into the four-part story. 
You want to talk about any of these matters, any of these issues that are brought up? Fantastic. They make no sense apart from Jesus. They make no sense apart from the four-part story. None. We cannot live our lives and we cannot raise our children with them thinking that life is binary. Issue after issue after issue. Get on the right side of the issue. Here's the right side of the issue. Here's the wrong side of the issue. We can't raise our children and we can't live as if life is just about one issue, then the next issue, then the next issue, then the next issue. We have got to change We have got to change from looking at life through a binary lens and transition into looking at life as a story. The way that God has written his book. The way that God writes the reality of everything. Creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration. That's where those issues that are brought up make any sense whatsoever. We need Jesus and the gospel, and that is what our children need because it's what we need. And if we don't live the gospel out, then yeah, they may be super moral. They may become experts in these areas. They'll have no idea how to repent and believe. No idea how to think about restoration. Won't even be a a thought. They have no idea what to think about creation and issues through creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration. A couple weeks ago, I listened to this podcast by a a pastor who is retired in the last couple years and who has been diagnosed with cancer. His name is Tim Keller. And this interview uh, was um, a recent interview asking him how he was doing. And uh, the person that was interviewing Tim said, uh, how, how's it going um, fighting cancer? How are your treatments going? He has pancreatic cancer. And Tim said, you know, a lot of people come up to me and say, you know, I hope you're doing well fighting cancer. And he says, you know, that's kind of true, but I'm really fighting my sin. That's really what I'm fighting. Because if I, was, if I was believing the gospel more deeply and I was living into Jesus more deeply, then I wouldn't worry so much about death. The power of the resurrection would be stronger in my life and more real to me than cancer. I'm not so much fighting cancer as much as I am fighting my sin to believe what Jesus says and to bring the power of his cross and the power of his resurrection into my life, unseen realities into the seen reality of my day to day. Beloved, who are you fighting? Who's your enemy? Look, look back over the last month or three months or, or five, ten years of your life. Look back over the emotional log of your life. Look back over the, the, the time that you've spent. Who, who have you been living as if they are your enemy? Who's your enemy? Who have you been fighting? Who is it? Your real enemy is sin. Your real enemy is death. Your real enemy is Satan, and and they have an answer in Jesus. Fight the right thing. 
Help me fight the right thing. Jesus is the only answer. He is the only way that we will be able to fight the idol of self-sufficiency and to fight the idol of comfort. He's the only way we'll be able to identify false teaching and he's the only way that our first love will continue to be stirred up and we'll keep the gospel. The main thing is the main thing. And beloved, that's what brings us to the table.